Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz, the family and discipleship pastor at Curtis Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and Pastor Anthony Trussoni, the supported elder at Poland Baptist Church in Poland, Maine. Great, Ben. How are you doing today, brother? Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, it's kind of a weird week because the uh, had a state convention meeting. Thankfully, it was here in town, but it just made my week different, and then getting ready to go out of town tomorrow, Lord willing. So uh, I just, I'm a creature of habit, and so my, my habits have been uh, been gone askew this week. So Yeah, yeah. I understand that. So, yeah. How about you? Yeah, my week has been askew as well. I had a surgery this week of the, of the time of recording. So, But one thing that definitely has messed up my habits and, and thinking process has been uh, we're recording this before Thanksgiving, about a week before Thanksgiving. And uh, and so I've seen a ton of people decorating for Christmas already. Have you seen that yet, Ben? Uh, I don't say I've seen a ton. I was at a friend's house the other day, and they already had it decorated, and I've heard of other people. Uh, I applaud them for their, their conscientiousness, but uh, we're not there yet. Now, how early did you see Christmas decorations up for sale in stores, though, down in Georgia? I may have seen it in August or September. I can't remember. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like it's getting earlier and earlier. And so for me, being somebody who is just such a stickler about order, you know, I, I get bothered by the almost the or, the misorder or, you know, you basically end up skipping over Thanksgiving and and start doing Christmas shopping before even getting your Halloween stuff. Although I don't know that all of our listeners get their Halloween stuff. Uh, does, does it bother you at all, Ben? It does, yeah, because I, I will make the comment sometimes to my wife or my kids or somebody in the store, and like, it's it's not even Halloween or it's not even Thanksgiving. Why are we getting the Christmas stuff out? Like, let's just be where we are. And I mean, it's just you know the kind of gross, crass commercialization of of Christmas, but you know, that's that's also where we're at. Yeah. So, well, we're gonna talk about order of things today in our podcast and uh, order some things that are more important than order of when you can buy Christmas trees, I assume. Correct, Ben? Or, or do you think it's less important than the Christmas tree order? I'm going to say this one's got some more eternal significance. Uh, so, yeah. So, But I, I want to ask you, Ben, when we're thinking about starting things, why does it matter so much to children who started something? I'm sure you've heard that kind of argument among children before. <laughs> well, it matters a lot to kids um, because, like, who gets the toy? Who you know? Who, who had it first? Or uh, who's going to get in trouble? Or who's going to take the blame? Because well, they started it. They're the one that kicked me first. I mean, I may have clobbered them for the the minor thing, but yeah, uh, it, it's kind of who's taking responsibility? Who's going to get the benefit or the uh, the hammer dropped on them? Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this is kind of a, a who started it. It's kind of a timeless argument. I mean, our generation had this argument as kids, our kids' generation, and our kids' kids will almost certainly. So, uh, And this definitely matters a great deal to adults as well. I mean, you see lawsuits being had over who was the one who started a technology or whatever, 
um, that who started it, it becomes a very important question. But I can't think of a more important question than who started the work of mankind's salvation. So Ben, according to what you know of the Bible and your theology, uh, who started the work of man's salvation? What does that even mean to start the work of man's salvation? Well, big picture, God did. And I think that's, and we'll get into this here in a bit, but that's something that the, if you want to call it two poles or two sides, you've got, you know, Calvinists and Arminians. They both do agree on that. Uh, when you get into some of the particulars, they may differ, but it was God's idea to save. And scripture is pretty clear that I mean, before the foundation of the world, um, this is something that God had in his own mind and heart and what he would do. Um, and so it is important for us to to see that. So, yeah, I mean, w- would you nuance that in any way? Or Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. And I, I think it's important to understand sometimes that people can agree to this chronologically. Of course, you know, God is has uh, existed forever and we haven't. But God's doing the first work in man's salvation is not just a mere chronological uh, proclamation. Actually, the term for what we're talking about today is is ordo salutis, uh, an old Latin term, basically meaning order of salvation. Uh, but we must understand, regardless of where we land in the Calvinism, Arminianism stuff, is that God is the first actor, and he is the ultimate pursuer in regards to man's salvation. Uh, and so, the, the ways this is approached can differ by different people based on your belief. Uh, so God either regenerates before faith, as the Reformed believe. Those who believe in predestination uh, will say that God regenerates somebody before they believe. Uh, or those who do not hold to this kind of view uh, will argue that God provides prevenient grace. Uh, this is the Arminian uh, position. But even that, you have the view that God is the one who acts. God is even the one who enables mankind to respond. Uh, and so actually any other approach, and really these two, any other approach that that then seeing God is the one who even brings about the ability to respond has been seen as heresy throughout church history. And I think it should. Well, you know, here's a, an idea. Since we've got this Latin term that we're working with, uh, a friend of mine's dad was... Uh, a student ambassador or something for admissions at a, a school in Scotland when he was working on his doctorate. And they had a, a prospective student come from another country and they realized that they did not speak the same language. And they both had some other language knowledge, but none of them overlapped until they realized that they both could speak in Latin to some extent. And so they did the tour of, uh, I think it was the University of Edinburgh in Latin. So, I, you know, maybe we could do that today. Yeah, I think that sounds good. So my Latin <laughs> is not the best. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't get real far. I did a children's lesson one time by reading from the Latin Vulgate. So that was something. <laughs> hey, that's fun. Yeah. So anywho, but uh, now why is it important to understand who actually acted first in mankind's salvation? Well, I think it's important that we do we get a hold on that so that we can give glory to God. And so uh, we also we, we realize the, the level of help that we need. Because, I mean, as you said, even uh, very consistent Arminians will say, yeah, God had to give us provenient grace. We cannot do that apart from his enabling grace. Uh, and so that's, I don't know if you're going to say the devil's in the details, but but both sides, both ends of, of this debate are saying, yes, we need God. And so 
if we need him that much, we've got to rely on him. It will it will humble us and help us to rely on him um, in our own Christian lives, in our evangelism, in how we deal with others. And so, uh, yeah, there's a it puts us knocks us down to size and, and realizes you know what our bandwidth is, what uh, where we stand in the the pecking order. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. So. And from a historical lens, I think this is especially important. It's been really understood as being something that is even first here among uh, early Christians. As uh, you know, we don't bank our faith on church councils as Protestants necessarily, but the one of the earliest church councils, the Council of Carthage, really on um, that and focus a great deal on the specific topic as as being that important. And like you said, I think the first actor in our salvation is the one who is receives the ultimate glory. Uh, and so really then any way to miss this is to miss salvation itself. It's to, you know, put us kind of in the steering wheel of salvation or to acknowledge God for who he truly is. Yeah. Now, why do so many American professing Christians miss this? Or do you disagree with that statement? No, I think that you're right. Uh, I think some of it stems from just a general weakening of theology. And we kind of, we oh, it's divisive, or it's this or it's that. That's just kind of for theologians to deal with. Let's just get on with loving Jesus. Um, but I think it, some of that general weakness in theology stems from a lack of expositional preaching. You know, we avoid areas of the Bible that may make us uncomfortable, or we just don't know what to do with it. It makes us tackle topics that we wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, also, just a lack of Bible reading. You know, I mean, we talked about this recently. If people were only reading devotionals and, you know, the verse of the day and that kind of stuff, um, they're going to tend to miss some things like that. And there's also a lack of, of systematic teaching in churches, um, talking about, say, the doctrine of salvation or just various things like that. Um, we tend to downplay, especially in America, I think we. It's like, what is the practical value of this? And if I don't just immediately see like a gold nugget of practical value just laying there for me to walk up there and pick up, like I don't even have to, you know, I don't want to have to dig down in there and pan for the gold or get get down into the mine. I, I just want to be able to like pick up a nugget or a big gold bar. And so sometimes you, it does take some meditation to to see, okay, what. What is the practical payout on this? And I think there are, and we just talked about some of it. Um, I don't think that's a minor issue, but giving proper glory to God, being humble before him, like that's that's pretty serious. Um, and I think, too, we have this emphasis in America and this, uh, you know, emphasis on free will. And I would affirm that we have some level of free will, but really the only one who has a truly free will is God. And I think that um, – I think both sides in the end, if, if we're being honest, I think we would say we agree on that because God's the only one who can make decisions unconstrained by something else. Like there's nothing above him that would limit his freedom to do this or to do that. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I think we do what we want. We generally make choices that matter. We do what we want. But you and I can't out the will of God. Like, you know, God has his plans that they are fixed, and we don't have authority above that. So um, I think, though, just like, well, we have free will, so that settles it. Well, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. No, no, we're getting into some pretty deep philosophical yeah. stuff, and 
I don't think in the next few minutes here we're going to solve all these issues, like the, get to the bottom of it exactly, that the church has not, um, everybody's not just come to full agreement on this in the past 2,000 years. So um, I don't hold hope out that we'll get it all fine-tuned the next little bit. But, but yeah, I mean, so what do you think are the symptoms, or, or do you think that Christians give proper place to those? I definitely don't think they do. I mean, actually, I've done some research on some different beliefs that Americans have, specifically Ligonier uh, mm-hmm. does a great job tracking these kind of things. And Ligonier has seemed to show very clearly, uh, as well as Lifeway, that uh, among all the false beliefs that Americans have, this seems to be the worst issue. Uh, and so much so that it looks like in their most recent state of theology, they're really almost not even asking questions about about the first actor in our salvation because the fact that there's just so much error in regards to this. I remember strongly seeing this, uh, and unfortunately, I actually remember a uh, pastor uh, that kind of presented it to me when he saw a question related to that that Ligonier had done. Uh, he kind of saw it as a question of Calvinism versus Arminianism, which he was intended to kind of express historical orthodoxy versus basically heresy. And so, yeah, I think we show a lack of value of historical orthodoxy is one thing. I, I mean, I think this is part of why there's only been recently kind of more of a recapturing of the importance of things like the immutability of God and understanding, understanding all aspects of God. Uh, but um, It means I, God can't change. Yeah, yeah, that's what it means. So, and... Uh, the, and I think further, we live in a culture where people very much want to be the captain of our own ship. I mean, I think that is kind of the Americana mentality. I, I remember I took some teenagers and trips, and one of the most common songs that was requested in car rides is this popular song uh, by Imagine Dragons that's basically a play off of, off of that old, um, that, the old poem Invictus. We want to be the captain of our own ship. We have this kind of expressive individualism where we want to, you know, we want to bear final responsibility. We want the buck to stop here, even with regards to our salvation. And I think that is a particularly dangerous sentiment to have. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, was it is it possible for sinful men to really first reach out to God? Well, Scripture doesn't portray it that way. I mean, Romans three uh, quotes from Psalm fourteen and Psalm fifty three talking about that none seek God. Now, that doesn't mean that literally no one is ever interested in who God is or any of that. But on our own, I mean, Paul is just building his case quoting from scriptures, a lot of psalms in particular, uh, portraying the the state that fallen humanity is in. And so, I mean, you look in, in as the Bible records history for us, we weren't crying out and asking for a rescue plan. Uh, God came to Abram, and he made a promise. And even with Adam and Eve in the garden, God makes, he addresses them in judgment, uh, and they're just told if you eat from the tree, you'll die. There's no promise recorded. But God in his mercy comes to them and says, yeah, judgment's coming, but there is going to be a son to come who's going to uh, bruise the head of the serpent. And so, yeah, then you fast forward to the future. God makes Abram a promise, and not because Abram is out there praying and fasting and God shows up. God just, God just comes to him because he wants to. And so, I mean, First John four nineteen, a, a very well known verse, says we love, you know, we love because he first loved us. 
And so, again, that's, that's something that both sides agree on, um, that God is the one, whether it's provenient grace or it's uh, electing, enabling grace, that God is, is the one who is reaching out to us. So this was his plan. Yeah, and I think all, all of that, where you said, it's, it just really shows why God's love is so magnified in, in salvation. Uh, God's love is expressed as one who did no obligation to save us because we are people that do not want salvation, uh, regardless of where your theological angle comes at. So, you know, there's an old hymn that is very reformed, and I don't recommend most churches sing it for the worship service, but I think it's beautiful. Uh, and it's my uh, that, my Lord, I did not choose you. And some of the verses are very overt, you know, in the idea of election. Uh, but there's a line in it that I really like, and it says, My heart would still refuse you uh, had you not chosen me. And you can maybe do an Arminian spin on it, if you will, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you told that view. But I think we all should be able to sing and celebrate in the reality that our hearts would still refuse God if God didn't do a work in us. It is not because of us that our heart chooses God. It is because of God first acting as the ultimate primary actor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And probably, yeah, probably that would not be suitable for all churches um, to sing, but. Now is belief that God acted first. Is this just a Calvinist thing? I mean, I suspect you hear this more among Calvinist uh, leaders, but is this just a Calvinist belief? No, and I think, I mean, we've been hitting on that, that, that it's not. Um, Arminians frame it differently than Calvinists do. Uh brought up provenient grace, that it's grace that prepares sinners' hearts to receive Christ in the gospel. Um, but again, that, that grace is there uh, to to make it possible. Um, and so it, it still gives God place for initiating towards us in the sense of being able to receive this, but even uh, just this was God's plan before people were around. It was in the mind of God. And, and then you get into... I mean, we're not going to get off the rails here and talk about uh, the views of the timing of the fall and uh, when God set this in order. Was it before the fall? After, yeah. you know. Um, but at the bare minimum, everybody would say that, that it's being orthodox that you know God had this in His mind, whether it was His plan or His response. Um, so it's not simply uh, the fellows at Dort and uh, you know, in folks wearing Geneva gowns. Um, it's just kind of standard Christianity. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, what's fascinating to me is, you know, actually, even in Southern Baptist context, which I'm not Southern Baptist now, uh, you know, I've known pastors who uh, believe that basically the understanding that God is the first actor is, is a, only a Calvinist position. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, it seems to be there's some particularly dangerous Cal a Baptist, particularly uh, that are advocating today that essentially that the traditional Baptist view is that we're not so fallen that we can't choose God, and that we do choose God, and that God responds to us in grace. Actually, I knew of a Baptist pastor that kind of expressed the teaching of salvation as essentially akin to like after Katrina, people reach God on top of their rooftops and they reached out and then uh the you know and then all the rest people down there to rescue uh responded by saving them after they first reach out 
And I, I don't think that's a Arminian position. That would be uh, that view of the uh, salvation would be one that would be well outside of historical Christianity, of historical understanding of Christianity. And so we must condemn, you know, those that are even, unfortunately, voices that are within supposed evangelicalism that want to advocate that kind of mentality that, you know, we're not born in original sin, that we're not so bad that we can't choose God on our own. Uh, and so we must then, for those who aren't Calvinists, we must insist upon this kind of, uh, this prevenient grace mentality that they must believe in, which again, basically says that God divinely enables all to respond. Uh, and because if not, any kind of view of human nature that either does not insist that God regenerates, gives a new heart prior to salvation, or does not insist upon the idea that God divinely enables people to respond will result in kind of a disavowal and a separation from any kind of historical Christianity. Uh, I will say that uh, I think prevenient grace, this idea that Arminians have to teach, is nowhere found in Scripture, but but I really respect men like Wesley and men like Jacobus Arminius uh, who insisted upon it because they sh showed how much it was needed for their theological system to work to not venture into really, really dangerous areas. Actually, by the way, it's funny, uh, the ways in which these kind of things have so steeped into our theological uh, traditions are even shown in songs we sing. I think, there's, yeah, that's some good points to to consider. Uh, and I think, yeah, usually when I've encountered people that I guess would resist this, they're not making some kind of really tight finger on the text case. Yeah. It's more just out of, well, no, that can't be because, you know, I do this and we do that. And uh, it's a little bit more just sort of, well, this makes sense to me or this based on emotion or something like that. Whereas, yeah, I mean, you've got people who are firmly not saying what, say, the canons of Dort did and others, they're, they're saying, no, nah, I don't think that's quite it, but there's still, there's something where God is involved in this. God is initiating. Um, and yeah, it, it's, I mean, you said that it's not, like, yeah, yeah, I would agree that prevenient grace is probably not the best explanation, but they're at least an attempt to, to reckon with what scripture actually says. Which is important. Yeah. All right. Now what does scripture actually tell us about the order of salvation then? Well, generally, it says that God planned salvation before creation. Uh, he promised it before we asked for help. Uh, we, we got into the mess of sin and the destruction, disintegration that brought, and we weren't like, hey, Lord, could you figure out a plan to fix this? He, he just came and promised it. Uh, said that he sent Jesus at just the right time. Uh, the, the Father and the Son poured out the Spirit to empower the gospel message to spread and, and to be received, I think. Um, specifically, you know, you look in Acts, and as the church grows, the gospel is preached, it's held out, uh, the Spirit draws and convicts of sin. Uh, in Paul's letters in particular, and in Acts, who, you know, was written by Luke, who's Paul's associate, uh, it does speak of God calling in a way that seems decisive. Like in the gospel, sometimes Jesus will, in a few places, talks about it. It's, it's not nearly the usage that Paul has, but it seems to be that when when God comes calling in that way, it, it is a one that people respond to. Um, 
but a person actually turns from their sin and trusts in Christ. It's not some sort of you know pretend play acting. The person actually does that, um, and that's required. Uh, yet Acts eighteen twenty seven says uh, all those who had believed through grace. So they did believe. It was enabled through God's grace. And uh, like in Lydia in Acts 16, uh, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to Paul's message. Uh, and then it talks about in other places in Acts that the Lord added to their number. So it doesn't undermine the preaching of the gospel. It doesn't undermine the act of faith of the people who receive the message. But it, it's sort of pointing it back to the one who was in charge or, you know, as uh, President Bush famously said, I am the decider. You know, um, I, I was watching a, a montage of Bushisms earlier. Just, it, the guy just makes me laugh. He just, you know, he could he could take himself not seriously, which I appreciated, um, but that God was the one who was giving grace. Yeah. Um, I, I've gone back and forth myself on the God's powerful call and um, if it brings us and then we're born again or if that's a separate um uh, you know, that calling and that new birth are actually two different things. And we may be splitting hairs a little bit. Um, but the bottom line is that new birth is a gift of God and the spirit pours out into our hearts in that. Uh, it's not something we do ourselves. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, I just want to add a couple passages, I think relevant to this. Uh, I think to me, maybe the most powerful passage in all of scripture is Jesus's own words uh, about kind of the process of salvation in John chapter 6. Specifically, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, you know, we do see clearly anyone who comes to Jesus will be saved. Uh, but Jesus makes it very clear that nobody's going to do that unless God first does a work, uh, the work of drawing them. So, uh, And then I think the most classic verse, one of the most well-known verses on this, uh, and it might go a little bit beyond just uh, the kind of broad idea on this, is going to be Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be first one among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, and he also called. And so it seems to be an order here. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. And so I, I think we do see, even if you have a different understanding of predestination rather than the Calvinist one, I think you have to have a sense in which God calls before salvation happens, uh, before somebody is born again, before somebody is justified of God. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, yeah, which, however you come down on it, you have to reckon with those passages that he's doing something. Um, now, is this all just kind of ivory tower doctrine, or is it relevant for families at all? I think it certainly can descend into ivory tower splitting of hairs and you know things that aren't helpful and just pride in some cases. Uh, but Scripture addresses it, so we should seek to understand it, uh, to give glory to God, to recognize our role, to rely on the Lord. I mean, the, say eschatology or the end times. The Bible addresses those things. I'm not 100% sure about how that's all going to work out. Um, but, I mean, God did reveal things about it, and so we should seek to understand it, um, but not get to the point that it's it's just unhelpful. So, But I don't, I don't think that... Uh, it has to be that way. I think we're asking the question as it relates to our own children, like what do you 
do in evangelizing them? Is it yeah. up to you to press hard or create just the right conditions and do this or do that? Um, and so there can be a measure of freedom given as well. Like if we come to a biblical understanding that God is the one who, who got this whole thing going and who keeps it going. Um, and so it, it's out of our hands and in, in his. So I think it can be a word of encouragement and comfort to parents too, that there's somebody stronger than you, you know, also at work. Um, and so yeah. it's not up to you to, to, you know, press them and uh, create the right conditions. Yeah. So I think in light of that, it is often to me presented as very ivory tower, this kind of discussion. Uh, but it was not seen this way as kind of an ivory tower academic discussion purely among both the earliest Christians as well as the reformers. Uh, both of those groups, I think, strongly saw that this is profoundly relevant for the Christian faith. And part of it is because this is relating to essentials. Uh, and, and like you said, Ben, I think the main reason why this isn't just ivory tower and academic is because this impacts how we see God and how we see ourselves. If we don't understand the order of salvation, we're going to distort who we are in relation to God and more importantly, who God is in relation to us. Uh, and so I do think that some aspects, some implications of this are going to be best suited for academia. You know, I, I probably suspect that the average seven-year-old ha- doesn't necessarily need to know, uh, you know, what uh, infralapsarianism is. Do you think so, Ben? <laughs> I think if some seven-year-old came up to me and said that, I'd, you know, look at them like, what? Where did you get that? I mean, I... I I'm uh, aware of Lapsarian views, though I probably would mislabel them off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think that's at the top of the list of the things they need to know. No. So, I mean, I, I think there's elements of this that are, yeah, more academic, but not the basics of this. The basics of this must be given to everyone. So Now, how might understanding the order salutis, as the Latins would say, impact the lives of ordinary Christians? I think, one, it can make you thankful. Uh, it can make you dependent on the Lord. It can push you forward in evangelism and, and relieve some burden from your shoulders that it's our job to, to be faithful and to give the message, but it's not our job to make sure that people believe it. And so we got to do these things to, you know, get them there. Um, I mean, we'll talk about this in a minute, but you look at Paul's ministry in Acts and the verbs that are used of what he did to communicate the truth of the gospel. Uh, it was expansive and detailed, but at the same time, Paul also talks about God calling and, and God being at work. And so I think there is definitely immediate uh, payout in our our day-to-day, you know, our our vertical worship towards God, being thankful and dependent on him, but also in ministering to other people. Yeah. So I I think one of the chief aspects in which it's practical for us uh, and impacts the lives of ordinary Christians at all ages is going to be that I think it's going to do a lot to crucify our pride. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, if we understand that it's, I'm not special, I'm not better than this person that's not a Christian, but ultimately God was the one who pursued me. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be far more natural to be humble. Uh, and I think it helps us even to have hope in navigating household evangelism. Uh, 
uh, both, you know, to think about the person, maybe that even a minor in our household that's rejected the faith. We've talked about this in the podcast recently, uh, but we can have hope in knowing that we're, it's not dependent upon making sure we do it, present things the exact right way every time, but we can trust in, and our God is able to save. And even when, uh, you know, we have a loved one that seems so far gone that there's no real possibility that they might get saved. Well, uh, rightly understanding Ordo Salutis, I think we'll, we'll shift that on its head because we will see nobody is beyond it because it's not about their ability to pursue God. It's God's ability to pursue them, which is far better than their ability. And really, I, I think this is going to help us know who our God is and to understand the might of his love in a way that we could not understand it if we did not see the order of salvation. Now, how how can parents help their children understand this important sequence? Well, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, I mean, just assuming some things, but as you read the Bible together, just assuming that there's something to do as a family, it's worth the time. And as you come across things, you could point it out. You could ask questions just to get them to stop and think about that. I think, too, you can mention it in your prayers. Uh, you can give praise to God. And, and also, as you pray for other people, kind of noting that, that God would be at work. Maybe there's someone that you know that you're praying for their salvation and, and praying uh, that, that God would be at work in their lives and that he would pursue them uh, in a very compelling way. And so I think those are two really simple ways that you could, but what would you add to that? Yeah. So I, I would just add to kind of, kind of some basic things. Uh, I think when we teach them the salvation story, as we should really be teaching them the gospel often, I think it is wise for us as Christian parents to present the extent of our depravity to young people, to show them that, because I think part of any misunderstandings of this have been people don't understand just how lost we are. And I think that people need to see that uh, our sinful state is such that we don't want to pursue God. Uh, it's God has to pursue us because we don't even desire what's good for us. And I think we respond by reinforcing what we believe in regard to this anytime that young Christians and our household might elevate themselves over the other people. You know, when we have kind of an us versus them mentality, oh, you know, the, those atheists are just so dumb and ridiculous out there. We need to understand that it's that we are not in grace because we're more awesome than other people. We're, we are under grace because of what God has done for us, because God is awesome. Yeah, I think that that's very helpful, and and there's ways that you could go about helping your kids see their sinfulness in ways that are not. I think it would be counterproductive, and just oh, you're just you're depraved and you're so bad, and you know when they've they've disobeyed or something like that. Like that's not the yeah. necessarily the, the place or the way to do that. And we could point out, listen, we need God's grace and His help because our our heart just wants to run towards what's evil. I mean, you can do it in a way that's winsome and it, acknowledging that you too are a sinner. Um, I don't just worth worth throwing that out. Yeah, that's good. So now, should next generation ministries wade into the order of salvation at all as we teach uh, beyond our own children? I think that it can be a part of it. I, I don't know that it's the most pressing thing, um, or that we need to do a multi week session on you know mm -hmm. lapsarian views, <laughs> you know stuff like that. Um, 
But yeah, I think that it can be brought up as it relates. Uh, again, as we read scripture, as we teach, as, as we pray, uh, and, and some of the same things you might do for your own kids, but just in churches, giving them a sense of that. And again, like you, you talked about earlier, our own response to the, this truth is to humble us and that you know, makes us thankful. And so making sure that that's clear to kids that uh, we're poor beggars who have found bread and we're trying to say, hey, there's bread over here. Um, and he, he's inviting you. It, it was his idea to, to provide the bread and not just like, hey, it's up to you to, to go do it. Yeah, that's good. So. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that adequately uh, navigates that. So, But how do we teach young people the beauty of God working first, whether we teach them in the church and children's ministry, whether we teach them in our household, or even like perhaps somebody mentoring a teen? I think as you personally are affected by that truth, as you have a humble heart and a thankfulness towards God and a joy, um, that it's, I've heard D.A. Carson say this a lot, that, you know, he taught in seminary, pastored for a long time and said, you know, I've, I've learned, my students don't learn everything that I teach them, but they do learn what I'm most enthusiastic about. Hmm. And so now again, you can say, I'm most excited about the Ordo Salutis. I, I mean, you don't go about it quite like that, but just, man, that God had kindness on me. God stepped into my life when I was, I, I was not looking for him. I, I did not want to submit to him. I relate to him and and he had mercy on me um and as you present that i think that that is there's something compelling about that um and then even as you present the gospel to them talking about you know god maybe it work in your life and even now and um just making clear it's, it's his power and it's his graciousness this message is even coming to you and, you know, even as you urge them to, to accept it and not to resist his grace, um, that, that you can lift that up. But what would you say? Yeah, I, I think that we do this by showing the reality of human depravity in a way that, again, is yeah, I actually think one of the reasons why a lot of young people miss this is because I think there's a lot of even contemporary Christian music that often treats human sinfulness as kind of like I'm messed up, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm I messed up my life, but rather than realizing that we're we are cosmic rebels, we're guilty of treason. Uh, and I think we should show what our depravity is. And as a result, the mystery of God's mercy uh, on a regular basis, and not just applying it to them, but even applying it to our own lives as adult volunteers and as parents. Uh, and I, I, I think we need to clarify, you know, even when, you know, I've had so many interactions even with young people where they feel like, oh, you know, that that's just you, you know, you loving Jesus like this, you desiring the Bible, you know, I, you know, there's something I'm not like that though but we must clarify in any time especially holiness is brought up that even the best adult volunteers are people that were utterly unworthy that God has extended himself to and this gives us hope that anybody can receive that same hope Um, and, and I think that we present a kind of in general historical theology as this this is something liberating rather than stuffy stuff uh, for them. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, I don't think that this this should be us presenting particular views of, you know, lapsarianism, which this should not be a matter of basically the question of when is regeneration connect to election? 
uh, but we should present the, the broad picture stuff, the stuff that, you know, confessions are written over as stuff that is, again, not just really academic, but is stuff that is for us and something that is to give us encouragement rather than just to be something to be winning on a quiz show. Yeah, yeah, like it can be presented stuffy, and and to quote Jacobus Arminius now, uh, in and then to quote, you know, Calvin, I, that's that's not it, doctrine is meant for life, for worship, for ministry, and so yeah, that is this freeing thing. And I mean, you don't have to be a professional theologian. Just like, hey, this was God's idea, and He started it, and He comes to you, and I mean, it can be as simple as that. Um, so yeah, I. I like what you said. Yeah. Now for the last question, uh, how does the order salutis impact how we approach witnessing to and discipling young people? Well, um, I told you earlier, I think it was off, off recording, but it was at the meeting of the Georgia Baptist convention and a pastor got up and he was preaching for, it was a quote missions sermon. Um, but he was preaching from John 7 towards the end where Jesus invites anyone who's thirsty to come to him and drink. And, uh, you know, you, you quoted from John 6 earlier about, he said, you know, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. And there's this sense that, I mean, this is what the, the pastor said. Uh, he said, God in his sovereign grace decides all that he'll decide, but we hold it out. And so, you know, even in our holding it out, that can be God's gracious move towards someone as the Spirit works through it. Um, and so we want to be generous in that and, uh, yeah, trust that God will be at work. Um, I, I think we want to make that message as clear as possible. I mentioned, sort of started alluding to this earlier, but spell it out a little bit more here. When Paul preached in Acts, it talks about he, he taught, he persuaded, he argued, he convinced, he reasoned. Um, a lot of thoughtful words, not just sort of Jesus loves us and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, now, if you'd like to repeat after me, like that, that doesn't seem to be what he did. Yeah. Um, it was a careful explanation of the Bible, yet it was – he talks about in some of his letters, you know, the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that the Spirit met with this and, you know, God open Lydia's heart, this kind of stuff. Uh, so we rely on the Holy Spirit in prayer to to start this work, to make it effective. And for someone who's already a believer, we, we pray that you, we do like Paul did, uh, that God would cause them to grow in faith and in love and obedience, that they would that it's not just they believe the gospel and move on, but that he's still at work and he is giving uh, that they're letting the gospel take root in their life and uh, help them be you know, deeper rooted in Christ. Um, and, and we teach and model for them to do the same thing. I mean, we, we tell them, hey, this is like we pray some of those things for them in front of them, and we show it to them in Scripture to try to build their confidence in God, um, you know, for themselves, but then also as they seek to reach out to others. And so uh, we're trying to teach them to go do what Jesus commanded and, uh, and make more followers. And so I think that's part of it. Like, hey, rely on God a a as you step out towards others. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'd like to add a couple things. I, I think almost anybody in ministry or even parents, we have a tendency to kind of, you know, the whosoever believes, if you would respond, we, we treat it as, you know, for the types of people that we assume would. Uh, but the, I, I think if we believe that God is the first worker, this means that we can't dismiss the hope or even the possibility of real repentance for the really difficult kid, for example. 
because we know that uh, that anyone at all that pursues after God, it only does it because God has first pursued him. God has first worked in their lives. And that means, again, that no ministry, no gospel ministry is ever in vain because God is the first worker. Um, and, and I think we also, for those who already are saved, when we uh, disciple the young people, we will help them see why one should dwell overwhelmingly on God's glory and salvation for all of life in a way that I think a lot of young people don't see it. I think a lot of young people can develop a faith that kind of treats God as their co-pilot. You know, God is great and there for them. But if you see God as fundamentally steering it, God is, you know, as the author of salvation itself, you will have to respond in a far more reverential and, you know, and proclamation of holiness kind of way. Yeah. I, I like what you said uh, in there. It kind of, it, for some reason this came to mind uh, several years ago, I was talking with a sister in our church who, uh, I don't even remember exactly the context of it coming up, but something came up kind of related to some of these issues and probably if she and I were to sit down and spell out in detail exactly how we understand Scripture to teach us, there would probably be some level of difference. Um, but she made a comment, and she said, you know, and it was related to some denominational thing. And she goes, if any of us think that we're the ones saving people and that God's not the one who's at work, like we are just full of ourselves and proud. And, and you know, she's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and it's just a, a good reminder for us all that yes, this is a, God does this, and however we spell out the final details, God is the one who deserves the glory, and so we rely on Him and we we trust Him to work as we give our own effort. Amen. So I, I think that's a good way to end our conversation. So, uh, and so I hope all of our listeners are blessed by this podcast, even if they listen to it out of order relative to the other podcast episodes. And I hope that you can get a little more order back to your life after you're back from the Georgia convention, Ben. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's going to have to take a week because I'm about to go out of town too. So I'm sure. <laughs> but thanks. Yeah. God bless brother. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.